0: Well, good morning. Good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. As you make your way back to your seat, go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. And so uh, let let me pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for your incredible mercy and grace. We thank you that you have redeemed us, that you've reconciled us, that you have gathered us as your people to worship you, that you have restored our relationship, and that we may, in one way or another, experience your presence, and one day we will fully experience it. And Lord, what a day that would be. Would I pray for us as we open up your word. Can you speak to us? Can you stir our hearts and our affections? Can you open up our eyes, our ears, our minds? Holy Spirit, can you illuminate truth? And for those who do not believe, can you convict them of their sins and help them to recognize their desperate need for you? And for those who do believe, can you encourage their hearts? Can you strengthen them that they will continually pursue you and cultivate a relationship with you? That they would be more uh, captivated by your glory and your majesty and yet be overwhelmed by the intimate relationship you have formed with them. So Lord, this is my prayer. Help us in this text. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the hard parts about going through the book of Genesis is trying to time a a sermon uh, the reason we have time limits on our sermons, I don't want to pull a pall and just go throughout uh, midnight um, and somebody fall off a balcony, even though we don't have any balconies. Uh, it's because, you know, we have people working with our children, thinking about the kindergarten room, and, and so I want to be sensitive to them. So it's just kind of hard. So here's what we're going to do. Two sermons in one, okay? Because last week we cut short, uh, so please bear with me. I'm going to try to tie it all in. I know some of you are like, there's no way this guy is going to do it. Maybe not. Okay, so, so let's get into this. I'm not. I'm going to do a quick recap, um, and then we're going to get into this. Remember last week, uh, we kind of looked at, we started in Genesis chapter 1, we looked at the six days of creation. Last week, we specifically focused on the sixth day, and we noticed that something special happened on the sixth day. God created the pinnacle of all of His creation, and we learned that who is the pinnacle, who is the, the, uh, the, the crown of God's handiwork? We are, humans are the crown of his handiwork, and he made us uh, in his own image. And what it means to be image bearers is that we have been appointed as royal representatives to rule over God's creation. That means that we have value, we have significance, we're image bearers, we have an assignment given, a job that was given to us. That's what makes us special. That's what makes us distinct from all other creatures. We also learn that we've been made male and female. That means your sexuality has been assigned to you by God who created you. And your sexuality is blessed. And it plays an important part of what it means to be in an image bearer. It plays an important part of what it means to rule over God's creation. Namely through procreation. And then we learned that we've been assigned as caretakers of God's creation. That means we need to be stewards of what God has created. And given us, and so because we ran um, out of time last week, um, I wanted I we didn't cover day seven, so I want to cover it because day seven is significant. And then we need to move on to the rest of chapter two. We're going to shift our focus where kind of chapter one was the broad view of creation, chapter two is kind of a specific view of creation where it really focuses, namely on a special creation that is us, where we're going to see how how man was created in God's world. Um, with uh, to live with God's creatures on God's term. Okay, so let's look at the first verse, uh, chapter two, verses one to three. We'll look at the seventh day, and then we're going to look at the the specific narrow focus of creation. Chapter two, verse one says this: So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Now, by reading this passage and comparing this passage to all the other, cre- all the other creations and all the passages in, in chapter one, you're going to notice that this passage is a little different. This day, the seventh day, is different from all the other days. How do I know it? Notice, um, in this day, the seventh day, there's no introduction formula. If you notice like day one, day two, day three, four, five, and six, it always started with God said or God commanding creation. You'll also notice that all the other created days, there was a closing refrain. Like at the end of the day, there's this refrain and there was evening and there was morning. We don't see this on the seventh day. Notice that out of all the other days, the seventh day is the only day that is blessed and set apart. God declared the seventh day to be holy. What, What holy means to be set apart. Another thing we notice in this passage is notice in your, in, your, in your Bible, the number of seven day is repeated three times. Now, some of the translations, it won't say seventh day three times, but it will refer to seventh day one, and it will say it is, which it's referring to the seventh day. So it's mentioned three times. And you will notice that there's a phrase that is repeated twice. His work that he had done. So what, what what's the point? What's the point of all of this observations? Not to show us uh, how smart we are, but rather in our observation there must be a purpose. Like clearly it's telling us, you know what we need to stop. We need to look at the passage and we need to ask ourselves helpful questions and what it is communicating. So based on all that we have observed, I think there's two questions that we need to ask ourselves. First of all, What does it, why did God rest and what does it mean for God to rest? And the second question we need to ask ourselves is why is the seventh day so significant and what does it mean? So let's look at the first question, why did God rest and what does it mean for God to rest? Now from the text we've already gathered twice that God had completed his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So in other words, we kind of already start to gather, like, why is God resting? Is he resting because he's tired and there's more work to be done? Or is he resting because he has completed all the work that he had set out to do? He had Completed it. There's no more work for him to be done. And it, this repetition shows us that God is the one who's done all the work. And that God is the one who's come to an end of his work. And on top of that, if we, if we look at the original language for the, in, in Hebrew, if we look at the word rest, really what it means is to cease. So in other words, God ceased from his work. But he did not cease from his work because he was tired and he needed a breather so that he continue his work. But rather, God ceased from his work because he had come to an end of his creation work. He had completed everything. And what he is doing now after he's completed his creation, he's handing over his creation to who? his royal representatives. And what we're going to see is in in chapter 2, verse 15, we're going to learn a little bit more information of what it means to hand off his creative work to his image bearers, to his royal representatives. But what we learn is that God has ceased from his work. There was nothing left for him to do as he's now passing on this responsibility of working, guarding, and cultivating his creation to his image bearers. So everybody understands we kind of answered the first question? Okay, let's look at the second question. Why is the seventh day so significant? And what does it mean? Okay, well, we know it's significant based on our observation of the passage. The fact that it was mentioned the seventh day three times shows us it's significant. The fact that out of all the creation days, the seventh day is the only one that is blessed. The seventh day is the only one that is declared holy by God. And later on, we're also going to see that this idea of of the seventh day, which later we'll find out to be the Sabbath day, is also later picked up in Exodus where God gives Moses the law. Does anybody know which number law it is to observe the Sabbath? Number four. Okay, number four. I'm just trying to help you out here. Number four. And what are you supposed to do on the day? You're supposed to... Cease work and rest and worship God. Okay, so why is the seventh day so significant? Are you ready for this? This It's going to be one of the most profound answers you've ever heard in your entire life. Here's the reason why the seventh day is so significant. Because God made it significant. The seventh day is significant because God said so. That's it. He is the one that made it significant. So now, if God is the one that made us significant, now we need to stop and pause and say, okay, God is the one who made it significant. What does the seventh day mean to us? If you're taking notes, a real simple answer is the seventh day is when we, creatures, turn away from creation and we turn to the creator. I'm just going to make it as simple as possible. Like, like what it means on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, is we as God's creatures who've been given responsibility to rule over creation, one day we turn away from creation and who do we turn to? We turn to the Creator, and by us honoring the Sabbath, God and His creatures we share in the celebration of God and His good creation. We enjoy entering into this rhythm of work and joyful rest. We embrace that God's Sabbath rest means experiencing the sense of completeness, that God has completed everything. And we can rest in that completeness and we don't have to worry about we need to complete more. We need to accomplish more because we can say, no, God has finished. God has completed everything and now I can stop and rest and think about how God has Completed everything. It is a day where we are called upon to share what is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation and turn to the mysteries of creation, to turn from the world of creation and turn to the creator of the world. That is what the seventh day is supposed to mean. Because let's just be honest, like obviously sin has kind of uh, distorted all of this. Like, anybody look forward to resting? We all say we do, but how many of us actually enjoy the reality of it? Like, I don't know about you, but to me it's one of the hardest days of the week. Why? Because I am motivated by accomplishing. I am motivated by, by productivity. I'm so focused and inundated of, of what's going on in my little world and what I need to complete that I forget about the one who has completed everything, the one that has accomplished everything. And so the Sabbath forces me to look up. Because while I'm working, what am I constantly doing? I'm looking down. And that is what it means for the, the, um, the Sabbath. Real quick here, and then we're going to move on. Notice, out of all the, the days, there's a closing refrain. There was evening, there was morning, the second day. Evening, morning, the third day. Evening, morning. But notice on the seventh day, there's no closing refrain. Which means the seventh day, in a sense, has no end. The seventh day is viewed as, in a sense, eternal. And we're going to see this in the Garden in Eden. And we're also going to see this, this idea of eternal rest is picked up in the Old Testament. When God delivers His people out of Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land, what did the promised land represent? A land flowing with milk and honey, a land where there is rest. Come on, guys, wake up, let's go. <laughs> this idea also is picked up in the New Testament. Jesus invites everybody, Matthew 11:28, "All of you who are weary and heavy burden, come to me, and what am I going to do? I'll give you rest. Yes, thank you. The author of Hebrews picks up this idea to enter into the eternal rest. So what does that mean? That means this idea of eternal rest, of completion, was always meant to be eternal. And what has sin done? Fractured, destroyed, and corrupted this and this is what we long for this is why all of us in a sense we hate rest and yet we long for rest we are wanderers exiles kind of drifting knowing there's something missing chasing after that like one of the things we see that uh, some of you guys are really close to retirement and what do you long for in retirement rest and guess what retirement provides for you not rest it provides more doctor visits No longer are you going to sit in an office in front of a computer, but you're going to sit in an office in a doctor's room. That is what it provides for you. Rest is what we long for. So let's move on here. As we uh, now read the rest of our passage, we're going to now shift our focus from uh, creation in general, which was a quick overview of all creation, the, the sixth day and then the seventh day. And now we're going to narrow focus on creation where God's now specifically draws our attention to the specific creation of of how he formed man, how he provided for man, how he commissioned man, and how he commanded man. As as we see that outline in our text, here's the main point. This is what I want you to see. And I'm gonna try to show you in the forming, in the providing, in the commissioning, in the commanding of man, we're going to learn that God is deeply personal. And I'm wanting to show you this throughout the text okay so what's the main idea God is deeply personal okay put that in the forefront as we read the text and let's look at uh, verse 3 chapter 2 sorry chapter 2 verse verse 4 it says this these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation At the time that the Lord God made the earth and heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. There's a transition happening from general creation to a narrow focus of creation. And and real quickly, you're going to notice this transition verse. Look at verse 4 as a transition verse. It says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning the creation." uh moses every time he transitions us he uses some a a sentence similar to that um you'll look at chapter five look at chapter five verse one he transitions us he says this is the document containing the family records of adam uh verse uh, chapter six verse six these are the uh, verse nine sorry chapter six verse nine these are the family records of of noah so, in other words, here's an opening verse that's showing us there's transition happening. Okay? Everybody get it? Transitioning from general to now specific. He's zooming in into creation, namely his special creation of man. But there's also another thing that is standing out in the text that's transitioning us. Okay? Namely the way that God's name is designated. So, look at your Bibles. In chapter 1. What name was given to God? God. Look at chapter two, the, the, the parts we read. What name is designated as God? Lord, God or or Lord. Chapter one. The, the Hebrew name for God is Elohim, and what that communicates, it p- portrays God's transcendence, His majestic power as creator. And in chapter two, the Hebrew name is no longer Elohim, but Yahweh, which means really it portrays His imminence, the fact that God is personal. He is relating with his creatures. It is the covenant naming of God. His covenant relationship, uh, when he enters into a covenant relationship, that is the name that God designate as himself. Yahweh. So now, do you see what's happening here? No longer is the author focusing on God's transcendence, His power and His bigness and His majesty, but now He's transitioning us to focusing and showing us that this God that is all-powerful is a God that is deeply personal. And here's the first thing we learn and how God is deeply personal, if you're taking notes, is this. God is deeply personal in the forming of man. He's deeply personal in the forming of man. Let me quickly real show you. So as the author is trying to describe to us what the earth looked like before he formed man, what does the Bible tell us? There's no shrubs. There's no plants. There's water. But there's none of these vegetation and why is the reason for there's no vegetation yet first of all god hasn't caused it to rain and second all what's the second reason look in your bible because god has not formed man to do what to to work the ground so all of this information is preparing us in the forming of man and so what does god do when he forms man he takes the dust of the ground and he 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 forms it and you're like, why dust? I don't know. Maybe to show us a human frailty, we're made out of dust. Um, In the Hebrew, there's a play on word um, because the Hebrew word for man is Adam and the Hebrew word for dust is Adam with an A at the end. Play on word. Why does God form us out of dust? I don't know. Maybe another reason is if we come from the ground, we're related to the ground, that means maybe we were perfectly created to... Work the ground. But then God does something different. Animals, he formed from the ground. Man, he took dust and he formed us. But then what does he do? He breathes life into us. That is what is uniquely different from humans. God has put life into animals. But God personally breathed the breath of life into us. It's this idea, and I know this is kind of weird for some of you guys, but it's this idea of God kissing you, giving you the kiss of life as he breathes life into your nostrils. It's this idea of this, intimate relationship, this unique relationship that the Lord is creating between us and him as he forms us and molded us and he kissed life into us as we exist. The the psalmist in in Psalm 139, let me quickly get, get to it here. Uh, David says Psalm 139 verse 13 for it was you who created my inward parts you knit me together in my mother's womb I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made your work are wondrous and I know this very well here is why we as Christians believe that human life matters And why human life is important. Because God has formed it from the ground and he kissed the kiss of life. He breathed life into it. Today is is, is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And it's a Sunday where we gather and we look at the truth of God's word when it comes to human life. And we say all human life matters. The life in the mother's womb matters because what is God doing in that mother's womb? He is forming it. The psalmist says he's knitting it together and he has kissed it with the kiss of life. And the psalmist says, I was wonderfully and fearfully made. Your work is wondrous. This is why we stand up for all human life and say human life matters we cannot discard human life because of a matter of convenience we cannot turn our back with those who have no voice we cannot turn our backs on those who've been casted out by society and say you have no more value because god has given it value and breathed life into it as he kissed it, like I can just imagine a, a little fetus that is, that is in the mother's womb and God just personally kissing everyone as he gives it life. That is what God is doing and God is deeply personal as he forms this life. And for some of you, even for you, you're like, I don't think my life really matters. Yes, it does because God personally kissed you and he gave you that life. Because God is a deeply personal God. Let me show you how God is deeply personal. Continue to show you. Uh, And look at verse 8. He's deeply personal if you're taking notes in his provision for man. Uh, Look look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first one is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah. Where there's gold, gold from that land is pure, delium, onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gion which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris which runs east of Assyria and the fourth river is the Euphrates River. How does God provide for man? What does the opening verse say in verse 8? What did God do? The Lord God provided by planting a garden in Eden. The, the the word Eden means a place of abundant waters. Well we kind of see it of the description. How many rivers? Four rivers. It could also mean a place of delight. The the, the description that Moses gives us about this garden is characterized by trees yielding fruit that are pleasant in appearance, delightful in taste. Notice the words, all kinds, pleasing, good, which gives us just really evidence of God's extravagant provision. We we, we see the land described by four rivers, plenty of water and, and, and pure gold. We see then on top of that is the, the tree, uh, two trees placed in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both are placed in the middle of the garden, which could possibly symbolize that as man lives in the garden, he is not the center of the world, but rather God is who gives life to everything. He is the center of of the garden and the center of man's world the tree of life indicates that this tree produces life not because that tree is special but because of the planter who planted that tree made it special the tree of the knowledge of good and evil indicates the very presence of the knowledge of good and evil and eating it would confer that knowledge And only God has the knowledge of good and evil. And to aspire to have the knowledge of good and evil was not meant for us. It's wanting to take the position of God. Because to have the knowledge of good and evil is to have the ability to determine what is good and what is evil. Something that was never meant for us. And let me tell you today, even today, we are not to determine what is good and evil. And when we make that determination, we're playing the role of God. You're like, so we can't say anything is good and evil? No, we can't because God has determined what is good and what is evil. The reason why I can say murder is wrong and murder is evil, not because I have judged it to be evil, but because God has said it to be evil. The reason why I can say man is made in the image of God and is created beautifully and determined to be good, not morally, but just good in creation at well, is because God determined that. And for me to say, nah, I don't think so. I am usurping myself in the place of God. And this is, it's setting us up for chapter 3, but let me move on. This garden characterized by rivers irrigating the garden precious stones metals um, and notice all the details in the locations of the river and i know some of you are thinking oh let me look on a map i'm sure archaeologists we can found it or even indiana jones have maybe found the garden of eden We're in the garden as the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and Evil. the reality of it is the location of the garden is a mystery today and If we look at chapter 3 when man was kicked out of the garden it was meant to remain a mystery because what did God do he placed an angel it was never meant to be found but it was described in a sense to show us something and here's what I want to show you how God is deeply personal if you notice in the garden the description is very similar to that of the new temple that Ezekiel is describing and the new city, and the new Jerusalem that John is describing in Revelation. Both descriptions have rivers flowing through it. Both descriptions have these precious metals that are filled with it. Both descriptions have this abundance of trees and fruit and produce. And both descriptions, the temple in Ezekiel, and the new Jerusalem in Revelation, what is it really all about? The very presence of God. So you know what the garden is all about? The very presence of God. So when God provided for man, he's deeply personal and create a garden. He doesn't place him in the open field, but he places him in a garden which kind of eludes, there might be some fences, there might be some barriers, there's safety and security There's an abundant provision of all kinds of food, the best of gold, the best of waters that flow through it. But the reason why the garden is so delightful is because it represents the very presence of God. So God doesn't just form man and breathe life into man. He doesn't just provide for man and give him food and say, yeah, have at it but he provides his very presence to live with man. All of this in chapter 2 is setting us up for how awful chapter 3 is. But let's move on. We're running out of time here. We're going to continue to see how God is deeply personal. Uh, We've seen how he's personal in forming man. We see how he's personal in um, providing for man. Now he's personal in commissioning man, if you're taking notes. Look at verse 15. He commissions man. Verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man, placed him in the garden of Eden to work it, to watch over it. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Let's stop here. Look how God commissions him. What does he do with, after he's formed them? he provides for him, he takes them and he places him in the garden. And then he tells them, I want you to oversee it. I want you to oversee this garden. And, and what kind of entails the overseeing of the garden is working the garden, watching over the garden. And some of your translations, it has guarding the garden. Why guarding it? might show us that there's something to guard against. He was placed in the garden, he was supposed to keep it, to watch over it, to protect it. And you're like, "Well, what time out here? I thought everything was perfect. There was no enemy." Well, in chapter 3 we find an enemy. What was Adam's job to guard the garden for anything unusual happening? And what's unusual? Animals talking. That's unusual. His job was to guard and protect. It sets us up that there's an enemy out there. And in commissioning, uh, think about this. In God commissioning a man, he is deeply personal because when you commission somebody, what, what's happening? You're in trusting that person. There's a sense of accountability. There's a sense of reporting, training, Providing. You're like, you're just coming up with that stuff. No, like think about it. When Jesus commissioned his disciples to go be his witnesses, what did, what did he do? Did he not empower them and do training with them and gave them the Holy Spirit? Did he not give them a promise as they're continuing this mission, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age? Were they not supposed to stand in front of Jesus and bring report to, the, to, to how they have worked out this commissioning? God is deeply personal by assigning you a job by commissioning you which means now you're accountable to him you're dependent on him for him to train you for him to give you resources for him for you to report to him and i have no doubt this is me just speculating and then i'll be done i have no doubt that adam struggled in certain things maybe he was cultivating the ground and maybe things weren't working right maybe he had to go back to god and say yeah, I'm having a hard time with these plants. Can you tell me what I'm doing wrong here? Yeah, you're overwatering it. I don't know. But there was reporting, there was accountability. We even see in chapter three what does God do in the cool of the evening? God walks through it. What do you think Adam and Eve talked to God about? You don't think they reported what they were doing? You don't think God looked at it and said, man, I love what you did. Look how beautiful. You're just like your father. You're so creative. I'm so proud of you. You don't think God said that? We don't know. We can just speculate. But clearly there was some conversation happening. You don't think like just like our kids or can't wait to see us to bring us their beautiful artwork and say, look at what I made. You don't think they did that running to God and say, look what we created, look what we plant, look at this luscious fruit that it produced. And God says, Oh, you're so cute. That is so beautiful. God is deeply personal as He commissions us. There's a sense of trust relationship. And then the last one, God is deeply personal if you're taking notes and commanding man. He commands man. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man. And I want you to pay attention how this command is put forth. You are free to eat from any tree of the garden. That command is empowering. That command is extravagant. There's tons of freedom. But here there's a prohibition. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Growing up in the church, I think the picture we have of God's command is locking us up in a room and say, there's one fruit to pick from, you can't eat it, don't touch it. That's not what's going on. God says, look at all the fruit out there, you can eat all of it. As much as you want from it. I don't know how many options there were, hundreds, maybe thousands. He's like, Go to town on it. I don't care how much you eat. He's not saying you can only have a little bit of this, a little bit of this. Bit. You've got to watch your diet. Too much of this. Is going to he says just have that. You're free to eat from it, to marvel and relish and feast on it. But there's one tree I want you to stay away from. Don't eat of it. Because when you do, you will certainly die. And the fact that God gives a command to man, He gives him the freedom to enjoy His creation. He gives him the opportunity to obey His command. And in His mercy and His grace, He warns him of what happens if you break that command. You will die. Shows us how deeply personal God is. It means He cares for man. He provides for man and he tells man, enjoy, but there's one thing I want you to stay away from. And it wasn't like a test fruit. It was the temptation of wanting to be like me, of wanting to declare what is good and what is evil. And what we're going to see in two weeks, sorry, it's not going to be next week, is that the sin wasn't just a mistake that they made of couldn't control themselves like we can't control ourselves when it comes to brownies. But rather, it was a defiance rebellion of wanting to usurp God by being equal to God. God's command is deeply personal by engaging, instructing, warning, and giving man the freedom to either obey him or disobey So let's talk about response here. If God is deeply personal, which I hope I've provided enough evidence to show you that God is deeply personal, informing us, and providing for us, and commissioning us, and commanding us, how do we respond? The response that we have is here's and here's what also the text shows us. Why did God create us? What's our purpose? That was to walk with him, to be an in intimate relationship with him, which means our response should be to continually to cultivate and pursue that relationship. But here's the problem. And we're going to see the problem in a couple weeks. When you rebel against God, that relationship is over. Once you're out, you're out. There's no way of coming back in unless God makes a way for you to come back in and bring you back in. And it sets us up for why God sent His Son to come and redeem us and to reconcile us and to bring us back so that we can continue in a relationship with him because what we're going to find out throughout the pages of scripture is that outside of the presence of God, the only thing that is waiting for you is destruction and death. That's the entire story of, of the Bible. How do we get back in? God making a promise That an offspring, a seed is going to come and bring God's people back in. So, application here for the unbeliever. Maybe you don't believe in all of this stuff. Maybe you say, ah, this is hocus pocus. Outside of God's presence, I guarantee you a life of destruction and death. What's my evidence? Just turn on the news, just go on the internet. I don't care how many laws we put in place for, for the safety of people. The only thing that is waiting for you is destruction and death. That's your future. I don't care how good of a parent you are to protect your kids from destruction and death. Guess what's waiting for them? Destruction and death. The only way for you to experience life is inside the presence of God. And the only way for you to be entering into the presence of God is through trusting in the provision that God has made for you to enter into his presence, and that is through his son Jesus, who lived a life you could not live and died a death you were supposed to die. He redeemed you and he reconciled you and he made all the wrong that you did right so that you can be accepted by God. And for the believer, what does that mean for you? That means one of the most important functions for you as his image bearers is to continually cultivate and pursue that relationship in the presence of God because outside of it is absolute hell. But inside of it, there's life. There's hope. There's joy. There is peace. There is rest. That's what we were made for. So continue to cultivate it. continue to refocus on it. Because I know all of us get distracted by creation. We get distracted by the work that needs to be done. And it's time for you as the Christian to look up and look past all of the chaos and the destruction and to look up to the Creator and say, I can experience rest right now in what He has done for me. Because my God is deeply personal in how He's formed me. And how he's providing for me even now today. God has not changed. We have. But God hasn't. The God we read about in Genesis chapter 2 is the same God today. So let us continue to cultivate that relationship and fix our eyes on him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are deeply personal. That you have entered into a covenant relationship with us. That you have formed us and provided for us, commissioned us. And you've given us commands. Commands that are freeing. Commands that are for our good. Commands that reveals how good you are. And so Lord, help us as Christians to continue to cultivate that relationship with you to continually long and yearn for and pursue the very presence of God where we can find rest for our weary souls. Forgive us for the many times we've been distracted by the chaos of creation that have rebelled against you. How we get swept up in the hype of it and we forget that you have come and you have reconciled us. And Lord, for those who do not know you and who's trying to form their own little paradise in this chaotic world. It's just going to fail. It's trying to build a house on the sand. When the waves of life comes, it will just destroy it. Lord, can you help them to realize that there is no life apart from you and that the only response that is appropriate is that of repenting, turning from their sins and turning to you and in faith believing that you have come to redeem them and to make them to make them right with you so that they can enjoy life in your presence they can enjoy peace and joy in you so can you convict them of that can you reveal these truths to them in Jesus name amen